2: It was a Sunday morning when Carrie Dwart found his sister unresponsive. Then EMTs arrived and inserted a breathing tube.
3: When I seen her on the stretcher, I noticed that her belly was, looked like it was inflated.
2: From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. A troubling trend among some first responders in Rhode Island, incorrectly administering breathing tubes, a potentially fatal mistake. And as the birth rate continues to drop in the United States, we talk about the choice to be child-free.
4: The narrative all girls hear when they grow up is that the
2: most important thing they can do when they become adults is to become mothers. Plus, a dairy farmer grows corn to feed his cows. But after bears keep destroying his crop, he gets some help from hunters.
5: There's no insurance for for animal-damaged crop. I don't believe there was any other option for us at the time.
2: It's next.
6: Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
2: I'm Shannon Dooling, a reporter at WBUR in Boston and your guest host today. Thanks for joining us. Our first story looks at a startling trend in Rhode Island. In 2018, a doctor identified several patients arriving by ambulance to hospital emergency rooms with misplaced breathing tubes. All of the patients died. That discovery raised alarms about Rhode Island's controversial practice of allowing emergency medical technicians to perform intubations, the process of putting a tube in someone's airway. Lynn Arditti has this next story as part of an ongoing investigation into Rhode Island's 911 emergency system from The Publix Radio and ProPublica.
7: Carrie Duart was awakened at his home in Providence one Sunday morning last March by a phone call from his 11-year-old niece.
3: Yeah, right? What's going on? And she was like, yeah, my mom.
7: Her mom is Duart's 38-year-old sister, Paula, and she was in trouble.
3: Uh, I'm trying to wake her up. She's not waking up. And she's making weird noises. So as soon as she said that, I, you know, woke up and just left my house.
7: At the apartment in Pawtucket, Dwart began CPR on his sister until the ambulance arrived. Dwart waited in another room while the EMTs took over. They hooked her up to a heart monitor, started an IV, and inserted a breathing tube. 30, 40 minutes passed. Then they emerged carrying his sister on a stretcher.
3: When I seen her on the stretcher, I noticed that her belly was, it looked like it was inflated. It was the first thing I noticed when I seen her on the stretcher.
7: Paula Duarte was rushed to the hospital. About eight months earlier, in the summer of 2018, Dr. Nick Asselin was doing research on cardiac arrests in Rhode Island. He found hospital records that showed patients arriving in the emergency room with misplaced breathing tubes, an often fatal mistake.
1: My research assistant started coming back to me and started saying, hey, there's documentation that the tube was in the wrong place.
7: In the wrong place, meaning that the breathing tube was lodged in the esophagus, sending air into the stomach instead of the lungs.
1: And that sort of sent a chill down my spine because unrecognized esophageal intubation is like the ultimate sin in EMS.
7: At first, Asselin's researcher found four cases, then seven. More trickled in. By February of 2019, Asselin had identified 11 patients with esophageal intubations at hospitals in Rhode Island over the previous two and a half years. In each case, the misplaced breathing tubes had apparently gone unnoticed by the EMS providers. The patients all died.
8: As small of a state as Rhode Island is, from a square mileage standpoint, that's widespread. That's Dia
7: Gaynor, executive director of the National Association of State EMS Officials.
8: That should cause the state to sit up, take notice, address it with their state advisory council or board, and reconsider the scope of practice.
7: In other words, rethink the procedures EMS personnel are allowed to perform. Jason Rhodes did exactly that. He's the state health department's chief of emergency medical services. Since the 1970s, Rhode Island has licensed emergency medical technicians with advanced training to intubate patients in cardiac arrests. They're called EMT cardiacs. But Rhodes recommended bringing Rhode Island in line with the national standards. Restrict the practice of placing those breathing tubes to only the most highly trained EMS providers, paramedics. That's what most states do.
1: I understand that, you know, folks have a lot behind that skill, and I understand that it's been in the protocol for a long time.
7: He's talking about EMT cardiacs.
1: And it somewhat defines you as a practitioner, but I also feel very strongly that we need to stay with the science.
7: Two separate studies published in 2018, one in the U.S. and one in the U.K., found that patients fared at least as well, if not better, when EMS personnel opted for less invasive devices to allow patients to breathe. But in Rhode Island, EMT cardiacs outnumber paramedics four to one. What's more... Their supporters include the Firefighters Union, the Fire Chiefs Association, and a mayor, none of whom like doctors and health officials telling their EMT Cardiacs how to practice emergency care. If Rhodes wanted to change the protocols for intubating cardiac patients, he'd need the support of his fellow members on the State Ambulance Service Coordinating Advisory Board.
5: Good afternoon. I'd like to call uh, the March meeting of the Rhode Island Ambulance Service Coordinating Advisory Board.
7: The 25-member board was meeting in a conference room at the Community College of Rhode Island. On the agenda, a proposal to remove intubation from the protocols for EMT cardiacs. Opponents lambasted the measure.
3: We're the experts. We're the ones who put these in on rooms and apartment buildings. Not doctors who are doing it when they're in nice ORs or in nice ERs with bright lights and a lot of people helping them.
7: That's Paul Valletta, a lobbyist for the State Firefighters Union. Here's Smithfield Fire Chief Bob Seltzer.
5: There are more experienced EMT cardiacs in the state that are more experienced in intubation than paramedics.
7: The most outspoken of all, though, was Johnston Mayor Joseph Policina. He's a retired firefighter and a licensed EMT cardiac.
3: The ET tube has been the thing for cardiac text. That's what saves lives. Some of the opinion up here is that if I have three fires next week and we throw three ladders wrong, we're not using ladders anymore in the fire department. That's what you're saying here. This is insane. It makes no sense. No sense at all.
7: The board listened and voted to send the measure back to committee. The EMT Cardiacs would be able to continue to perform intubations, at least for the time being. Days later, Paula Duarte died. She became the 12th patient that we know of to show up at a hospital emergency room with a misplaced breathing tube. It's impossible to say whether Duarte could have survived if she had been properly intubated. The EMS report said that Duarte had been down for about 30 minutes before the ambulance arrived. But unlike the 11 patients in Dr. Aslan's study, Duarte's case was reported to the state health department triggering a formal investigation. Carrie Duarte said he hoped his sister's death would be a catalyst for improving EMS care.
3: For it to happen to somebody else, we would be pretty sad, you know. And if it does take my sister's death to awaken the situation, yeah, we'll definitely want to figure out what's going on and get to the bottom of it.
7: Since then, the EMT cardiac who intubated Paula Duarte has been disciplined for what the state described as unprofessional conduct. But he's been allowed to continue to practice. Pawtucket Fire Chief Bill Sisson said in a statement that firefighters are held to a high standard and that the department takes this very seriously and holds every person accountable for providing the necessary service to city residents. The measure before the advisory board that would have stopped EMT Cardiacs from performing intubations is off the table, and the EMS chief who proposed it has been ousted from the board in what his supporters describe as a political move. Policina, the mayor who defends the right of the EMT Cardiacs to perform intubations, has been appointed in his
8: place. So I'm very, very honored that the Senate president chose me as an elected official to go on the board. But I'm very honored that Governor Raimondo accepted his recommendation to put me on the board.
7: For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lynn Arditti. That story
2: is part of an ongoing investigation from the Publix Radio and ProPublica into Rhode Island's 911 emergency system. This fall, five swastikas were found written in chalk on a building at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. A week before that, swastikas were discovered on the Smith College campus in Northampton. A visiting Smith professor, Loretta Ross, has been taking on neo-Nazis for decades. And after the swastika incident, Ross gave her students an unexpected lesson on choosing your opponent. New England Public Radio's Ben James has the story.
8: Back in the 1990s, Loretta Ross was working at the Center for Democratic Renewal, a national anti-hate group, when she received a call from a man named Floyd Cochran.
9: And immediately, without even thinking, I blurted out, The Floyd Cochran? (laughs) Because we monitored him. He was the national spokesman for the Aryan Nations.
8: To Ross's surprise, Cochran was seeking help. One of his sons had been born with a cleft palate, and a leader of the Aryan Nations argued that the child should be put to death. In the process of deprogramming Cochran's radical beliefs, Ross and Cochran became friends.
9: Floyd taught me a lot about the construction of whiteness and white supremacy in a way that I had not shown any sympathy or empathy for heretofore because I kind of felt like if they wanted to hate me, I was okay hating them, <laughs> Yeah.
8: Flash forward a couple decades and this black feminist leader now teaches a course on white supremacy to a few dozen students, most of them white, at Smith College.
9: I like teaching young people how to subvert white supremacy without feeling guilty over being white.
8: On a recent Tuesday, Ross looked to her students for clarification on some disturbing campus events.
9: Didn't this campus just experience an anti-Semitic incident while I was out of town? What happened?
8: Swastikas drawn in red Sharpie on the walls of three campus buildings. Students told Ross the story and almost immediately they described the campus response.
6: It was really hard to hear some of the some
10: of the the knee-jerk re- reactions of excuses. The idea that it it couldn't have been a Smith's student
8: other students said the school administration mishandled the racist graffiti.
9: Smith has such a long history of only responding like retroactively and doing nothing proactively.
8: Ross listened closely for a few minutes until finally she'd heard enough.
9: I don't want to distract y'all from what is a student human right, which is to bash your university. But Free speech. Huh? Yes, yes. But let's be clear. Smith, at worst is a problematic ally. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be talking about fascists. And so unless you think the leadership of Smith is fascist, (laughs) can we stay focused on the Mm -hmm. fascists?
8: There's a term Ross uses again and again, threat assessment or target assessment. She says organizers and activists on the left can too easily overstate the harm caused by their potential allies, and that they often fail to accurately assess the risk posed by their true opponents.
9: So I want to advise students to have better target assessment. Go after the Nazis. Don't go after the people you think that should have better defended you from the Nazis. They may be a problem, but they're not the ones trying to exterminate you.
8: In a recent New York Times op-ed, and now in a book she's writing, Ross brings the question of target assessment to bear on a broader issue, the way people communicate dissent in what's often referred to as the call-out culture.
9: The call-out for me is when you choose to offer your judgment of someone else's thoughts, behaviors, or, or actions, or looks in a way that publicly humiliates and shames them.
8: Calling power holders to account for their actions is necessary, Ross says.
9: But most calling out that I criticize is horizontal. It's between people of the same power status or the same relative uh, status that seek to prove how woke or how politically correct they are.
8: Marin Grasky, a student in Ross's course on white supremacy, now questions the ways that she herself has called people out.
11: I was thinking about the times I have via social media, which has never been fruitful. It has only made me angrier um, and has like usually resulted in being blocked or something and the person not changing their mind.
8: Ross's advice is to take the grievances off social media, to end the group pile-ons, meet with those you disagree with one-on-one and begin the more challenging process of calling in.
9: Calling in is holding people accountable for things that they do that are problematic, but doing it in a way that is healing versus punishing.
8: You don't build movements by ruining relationships, Ross says. Her book, Calling in the Call Out Culture, will be published in 2020. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ben James.
2: We wanted to dig a little deeper into this idea of calling in and target assessment. So we've asked visiting Smith professor Loretta Ross, who you just heard from in that last story, to talk with us some more. She joins us from the studios of New England Public Radio in Springfield. Loretta, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, we're so thrilled to to have you and to um, have this conversation. So let's start where that last story sort of ended, with this idea of Calling in instead of calling out. Why do you think calling people out doesn't necessarily
9: work? When you call someone out, or actually when you call somebody a name, like calling them a racist or something like that, they immediately get defensive because they feel like you're attacking their character, their morality. And they're shut down. They're mm. not going to listen to someone who's made them feel awful I mean, why would right. they? Right, <laughs> right, yeah. It doesn't yeah. make sense. And so it doesn't produce the positive outcome that you may desire when the people have shut down, become defensive, become angry, or try to defend and double down on what they've said or done. It's a bit
2: easier, right, to have that knee-jerk reaction, though, and, like, if—I if, if um, I, I think it, it, it takes a little more time and thought and analysis and to—, to participate in, in calling in someone.
9: Would, would you say that's fair? It does take more work to call people in than to the, than the call people out, because when you call them in, you're caring about the consequences of what you do. When you call people out, you're just throwing out your, your word bombs out there, irrespective of their harm. Mm. And so, yeah, it does take more work
2: one other one other an idea of yours that was mentioned in the in the piece we just heard is um this idea of threat or target assessment. What are some of the main ways you're seeing that play out culturally today?
9: I think calling out is a wonderful technique when the people who are causing harm are inaccessible to us. They're very powerful or they're protected by gatekeepers and things like that. Mm -hmm. But the harm I see with calling out is when it takes place horizontally. People who have the same access or same social status or power that you have that you're calling out. Instead, we need to look and see if this is, in fact, a problematic ally, someone who may not know the latest word to use or the latest convention or who simply made a mistake or is willing to learn from their mistake and continue to work with us in the human rights movement. Mm. And so what I critique is we fail to distinguish many times between being offended and actually being threatened.
2: Loretta Ross is a visiting professor at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. She's currently writing a book called Calling In the Calling Out Culture, Detoxing Our Movement, which will be published in 2020. Professor Ross, thank you so much for being with us on Next. Thank you for having me. After the break, the increasing suburbanization of black bears in New England, plus a neighborhood feud over bears in Vermont, pits conservation against business. It's Next.
6: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Shannon
2: Dooling. Black bear populations are on the rise in New England. New research in Massachusetts shows how bears are adapting their behavior to meet seasonal food needs. At the same time, they're becoming more suburbanized. To learn more, New England Public Radio's Carrie Healy met up with Kathy Zeller, a conservation researcher at
11: the University of Massachusetts, who co-authored the study. So it went from about 100 individuals in the Berkshires in the 1970s to almost 5,000 individuals today. And that population is not only expanding in number, but is getting closer and closer to Boston. And so uh, my close partners, the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife, or Mass Wildlife, they are really interested in learning how bears are interacting with humans, behaving around humans. So why
0: did you have me drive to Hatfield? (laughs)
11: Well, it's a great example of bears living close to areas with human development. And so a recent study that we did showed that. Bears that live close to human development sometimes take advantage of the supplemental food resources that are available in human areas.
0: So supplemental food would mean that they aren't just out looking for acorns, which I assume is what they're probably doing in um, a more rural area right now?
11: Yeah, so bear food changes throughout the year. So in human areas, there are supplemental foods that are high in calories, like bird feed. Also, unsecured garbage, there's pet food, uh, even agricultural crops. So in the fall, when the crops become ripe and nutritious to eat, bears like to feed on those as well. So what got you
0: started on studying the movements of black bears?
11: Uh, So the state, our partners in this project, they've been collaring black bears since 2009 with GPS telemetry collars. And so some of the interesting things that we found are that bears are diurnal, which means they're active during the day. They have some peaks in activity in dawn and dusk. So just like us, we're moving around, we're traveling to work in the morning and then coming home in the evening, and then they rest at night just like we do. But when we looked a little closer at the data and dug in a little more, what we found was that it really depended on where bears were living so as you drove up through Northampton to come here, bears that have this um, suburban housing density in their home ranges, they're more used to it, they're more comfortable using it. And so they sometimes show a preference for these human-dominated areas.
0: And in those areas, they found that bears were actually altering their behavior.
11: To be more nocturnal, to take advantage of these human food resources And they were doing that, interestingly, not all times of year, but in the spring when they're coming out of hibernation. And then in the fall, they do it again.
0: This period of hyperphagia, or excessive eating, is exactly that.
11: So they're eating between 15,000 and 20,000 calories a day. And to put that in terms of human food, that's about eight large cheese pizzas a day or five gallons of chocolate ice cream a day. And they're doing this for multiple weeks at a time.
0: Zeller says the data suggests bears consider human interactions as risky and they weigh the risks and rewards of feeding in certain areas and use the more human dominated areas more at night when they're the chance of interaction is lower. There are obvious risks to all this. One bear that researchers tracked was recently struck by a vehicle and died not far from where we're hiking.
11: So Fitz was the bear that um, got killed on 91 recently.
0: We talked about Fitz and the other bears and decided to go for a hike into the woods and look for any signs of bears and maybe even see some of the bears in the study. Essentially, we are walking to a place that actually had bears.
11: Yeah, bears come through here quite often. Um, in fact, I believe this is just between here on the highway is where one of our bears denned one winter. So, if you happen to encounter a bear and it didn't hear you coming or smell you coming, um, one of the first things you want to do is make your make yourself look big and talk to it, so it knows that you're human and it won't want to come any closer.
0: So you're expecting it to turn around and go away? Absolutely.
11: What if it doesn't? If it doesn't, then backing away slowly uh, is your best option. Okay. While continuing to talk to it, and (laughs) (laughs) let know that you are there.
0: (laughs) We talked and walked back down the rocky hilly terrain back to the dirt road. And in the end, we didn't see any bears or even signs of bears.
11: They are out during the day. We were probably making too much noise. So if they were here, they likely just ran the other direction.
0: (laughs) For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Healy.
2: Now our next bear story brings us to Huntington, Vermont, a small valley town south of Burlington, where a neighbor has accused a dairy farmer of needlessly killing bears. The farmer says it was either the bear's Or his business. Vermont Public Radio's Liam Elder Connors has the story.
1: Tim Taft is leading me into one of his cornfields. Not too far. We walk down here just a little ways. Taft, a fourth generation dairy farmer, has about 150 acres of corn. And so this is all feed corn, right? Yeah. The crop is part of the feed he gives his herd of 240 cows, a mid-sized operation. We stop at the edge of one field and stare out into the sea of green stalks, slowly swaying in the breeze.
5: If we go right into here, we're gonna we're gonna find a pocket right right here. that's the
1: shortest distance we can go to. So Sounds I'm, good.
5: We tripped up in this. Part.
1: After about 30 seconds of walking through tightly planted rows of corn, we arrive at an open patch where a mass of stalks have been knocked down and stripped of corn. This is what bear damage looks like, Taft says.
5: So this is a. This is a medium-sized pocket.
1: Last year, Taft suffered enormous losses from bears eating his corn, about $17,000, he says.
5: For us, $17,000 is a lot for this business to lose. If we had not done anything and lost potentially double that, I don't know if we would have had enough money to buy enough corn to keep the number of cows we have.
1: For Taft, it came down to this choice. Let the bears eat his corn or get rid of them. That's why last year Taft had 10 bears killed on his property, He shot two of them. Other hunters took the rest. This is allowed under Vermont law. Farmers can kill bears eating unharvested corn prior to the hunting season. A game warden is required to investigate each kill. The normal bear hunting season limit is one, but landowners are allowed to take multiple bears if animals are damaging corn. There's no insurance for for animal-damaged crop. There was just no, I don't believe there was any other option for us at the time. I, I still don't think there is. But up a long, bumpy road next door to the Tafts, the neighbors at Show Farm had a very different take. The farm is picturesque, sitting just below the peak of Camel's Hump. In a yard outside of a large, rustic farmhouse, a flock of rescued ducks waddle around a hemp plant.
10: We're a certified hemp grower this year, and we're calling it Seedy Duck.
1: That's Melissa Hoffman. She moved to Huntington in 2003 and started Show Farm. The operation is guided by a philosophical approach to agriculture that looks at how ecosystems interact and influence each other. Hoffman says they also work to maintain wildlife in the region.
10: We're looking at how to structure perennial food systems so that wildlife can browse, they can assist that food system, they can have free passage, and how to integrate agriculture and wildlife together.
1: When Hoffman first heard a rumor about the bears killed next door, she was concerned. When she confirmed that 10 bears were killed, she was horrified.
10: When I discovered that that many bears had been killed last year, that was tragic. That's a tragedy. And I think more of us need to react to it that way.
1: Hoffman posted on Facebook, detailing the number of bears killed and naming the Tafts. The comment section was a deluge of outrage and included calls to boycott the Tafts products. Hoffman says she wasn't trying to personally attack the Tafts by publishing the information. Rather, she wanted to highlight a practice that she thinks is morally wrong.
10: More people should dis- feel free to disagree without making it a personal attack. And with, also with suggestions and kindness of an alternative. But it's hard when, you know, who am I to tell a dairy farmer how to do their work? You know, it's, it, there's a certain amount of hubris and arrogance That anyone like me would have and saying, I love wildlife, therefore you shouldn't do that.
1: So why do it then?
10: For the animals.
1: What started off as a philosophical dispute between neighbors has quickly become a focus for Protect Our Wildlife, an animal advocacy organization. The group sent a letter to the legislature accusing the Department of Fish and Wildlife of lax enforcement of the bear harvesting law. As far as the department's concerned, the TAFs have done nothing wrong, says Colonel Jason Batchelder. He says the Tafts have wardens check out the damage before killing bears and always contact the department when a bear is shot on their property. There are about 5,000 bears in the state, and the population has grown in recent years. Bears being killed solely over corn damage is relatively rare, with only a few killed prior to the hunting season each year, according to Fish and Wildlife. However, last year was an outlier, with 22 bears taken statewide in defense of corn. Batch Elder says a lack of naturally occurring bear food, like beech nuts, drove the animals to cornfields, like the Tafts'. If it was if it was ten bears a year, every year, we would start to think differently, and maybe we would have a big sale and buy a fence and put it around his massive field and see if that would work. But I don't believe it would. But Hoffman, the neighbor of the Tafts, says if farmers are going to grow corn, they should acknowledge it attracts bears and put up a fence.
10: If your only answer is to kill every animal that comes to try to take your corn, which you've planted in their territory, that to me is not uh, logical or responsible. If you can't fence it and protect it, don't plant it.
1: Down the road at his farm, Tim Taft says he looked at putting an electric fence around his seven and a half miles of corn, but it was too expensive, an estimated $80,000. Taft says when his name got published, the farm got some phone calls and emails that were upsetting. For Taft, it's hard not to take these criticisms personally. He's been working on this farm since he was a kid, and he's proud of the family business.
5: The things that I do, I do with pride. And they're the exact things that some of these people think makes me a very bad person. And that is a collision that I can't figure out.
1: Taft says this year, the damage wasn't too bad, and they didn't have to shoot any bears. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liam Elder-Connors.
2: Okay. Attention, cheese lovers. More varieties of specialty cheeses are now being made right here in the U.S. But Catherine Donnelly, a professor of nutrition and food science at the University of Vermont, says regulators keep threatening these local gourmet flavors. Donnelly writes more about this in her new book, Ending the War on Artisan Cheese, the inside story of government overreach and the struggle to save traditional raw milk cheesemakers. And in the book, Donnelly argues that the attempts to regulate cheese are less about food safety concerns and more about international trade. Catherine, welcome to next. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. Um, So, one of the overarching debates here is between cheese made from pasteurized milk. And cheese made from raw milk, which is how, you know, things have been traditionally made. Pasteurization was really invented in the 1800s or so. Can you talk a little bit about what what the goal of pasteurization was, how it came about?
12: Sure. So pasteurization applied to milk has been one of our most important public health achievements. At the turn of the century, and specifically for fluid milk consumption, there were numerous outbreaks of really serious illness, polio, tuberculosis, scarlet fever, and so we instituted pasteurization of fluid milk for general consumption. With respect to cheesemaking, however, the process of cheesemaking is taking raw milk and processing it for safety or preservation. And historically, that's what we've always done. That's why we make cheese. It's to take fluid milk, a very perishable product, and extend its shelf life.
2: That's also a segue into some talk about regulations here. So the Food and Drug Administration sets regulations for cheesemakers. And in the U.S. right now, as we've sort of mentioned, we can either buy cheese made from pasteurized milk uh, for the reasons that we've discussed – Or we can get raw milk cheese as long as it's been aged 60 days or longer. But the FDA uh, has attempted some more stringent regulations in recent years, right? I I mean, in your book, you talk about uh, proposed regulations uh, having to do with the wooden board method of cheesemaking. Can you talk a little
12: bit about that? Wood has a very important role, wooden boards and cheese aging, Wooden boards retain moisture and help to humidify the cheese ripening environment so cheeses don't dry out too fast. And for many traditional cheeses, they're required to be aged on wood. And so in 2014, when the FDA sent out a a memo To cheesemakers in upstate New York, the communique from FDA was that we have never allowed the use of wood in cheesemaking, and now we're going to start enforcing that. And they were claiming um, some safety concerns because wood could not be um, appropriately cleaned and sanitized.
2: I see. And so how does that or did that impact uh, domestic uh, cheesemakers who were using that method? So many of our
12: artisans, and importantly here in Vermont, have gone to try and replicate some of these traditional cheeses. Many have made multi-million dollar investments here in Vermont and Wisconsin. And so these cheesemakers were caught off guard, and it was a real threat to their economic livelihood.
2: So Catherine, in a lot of ways, your book is about the interaction between regulations and international trade. So let's stick with this case of the wooden board. How do those uh, regulations interact with international trade from your perspective?
12: So when cheesemakers were asking, where did this regulation come from, seemingly out of thin air, when you can't explain a scientific reason for this regulation, because no outbreaks of illness have been linked specifically to the use of wooden boards in cheese aging, you have to ask, well, what else could be going on to explain this? Mm. Well, if you ban the use of wooden boards in cheese aging, any of those European varieties that are required to to be aged on wood suddenly would not meet U.S. regulations, and therefore they couldn't be imported into the United States.
2: Okay, so what's the status right now of the uh, regulations around the use of wooden boards in cheesemaking?
12: Well, that's a very interesting question because it turns out in June of 2014, when the FDA um, had temporarily backed off of this issue, Congressman Welch and Speaker Ryan um, tacked on an amendment to FDA's budget that said that no amount of this appropriation can be used to enforce a ban on the use of wood and cheese aging. And so that issue has um, been settled in that way.
2: Professor Catherine Donnelly teaches nutrition and food science at the University of Vermont and is the author of Ending the War on Artisan Cheese. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure, Shannon. Thank you so much. Coming up, why some people are choosing not to have children. I'm Shannon Dooling. It's next.
6: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy.
2: 3.7 million babies were born in the United States last year. That sounds like a lot of children, but numbers from the National Center for Health Statistics show birth rates have been declining steadily since 2007. There are a number of reasons for this, like the high cost of raising kids and a decline in teen pregnancies. But Amy Blackstone argues some people are just choosing to be child-free. Blackstone is a professor of sociology at the University of Maine and author of the book Child-Free by Choice, which came out this year. She recently wrote about her choice not to have children in a commentary on WBUR's blog, Cognoscenti, and she joins us to talk more about it. Hi, Amy. Welcome to next. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're we're pleased you're with us. Um, so let's start with your sort of personal background. I know uh, I read in that Cognoscenti blog that you had this sort of big vision, this dream, (laughs) of of being so called cool mom Amy. Uh, You have to explain what what did cool mom Amy look like? (laughs) What was this all about?
4: I I did. So I really thought that I would become a mother one day. And spoiler alert: I'm 47 years old, and I'm not a mother. (laughs) Uh, But choice. But when I was much younger, uh, I actually came up with my plan. And my plan at that time was to have two kids, a boy and a girl. And I had this vision of picking my kids up from school every day, uh, you know, having my caprisons at the ready and <laughs> wearing my mini skirt and my leg warmers and being really engaged in their lives. I also had a vision for being in a, a woman of the world and a traveler and a uh, a a worker <laughs> right, right. and a leader. So yeah, i had I had big plans,
2: so how did this cool mom Amy dream, the vision? Uh, <laughs> you you touched upon it, but it it seems like it sort of mimicked some of the the trends of that time, right?
4: Yes. well, so it definitely, I think, did come in part from, what we were hearing in our popular culture at the time. So this was in the 80s. And, you know, we're sort of riding the the wave and the high of all of the gains that we got from the second wave feminist movement of the 60s and 70s. And women were entering the workforce at new and unprecedented rates. And what we were hearing was that women could have it all. But what we learned uh, rather quickly was that only a very small piece of of, of uh, our population can really have it all in that way. It takes great wealth uh, to have it all in that way and all
2: kinds of resources. Right, right. So you yourself got married young, right? Right out of college to your husband, I, Lance? I did. Yeah. yeah, I was 22 and Lance was 23. 22 and 23. And so you both had thought you would have kids one day. Did you just sort of assume that 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 was the path you would take? And if so, what happened? Well, we did both assume
4: that. So by the time I got married, not, you know, not that many years after a 10 year old me had determined what my fate was (laughs) in terms of motherhood. I, by that point at age 22, I had recognized that, oh, there were some other things I wanted to do before motherhood, like finish college and get a job. And then very shortly after finishing college, realizing, oh, I'd like to go to graduate school and get a PhD. So for many years, My answer whenever I was asked, uh, you know, when we were going to start our family was, well, we're too young, we'll do it later. And I kept using that response. I'm too young, I'm too young, I'm too young. And by the time I hit my (laughs) (laughs) mid-30s, I realized... I'm probably not too young anymore. In <laughs> fact, at that time, I had a friend who became pregnant by choice, uh, who was just a little bit older than me, and had been told by her doctor that her pregnancy was a geriatric pregnancy. Mm. Oh, so yes. I realized, you know, if I'm if I'm old enough to have a geriatric pregnancy, I'm probably not too <laughs> you ne- young. You to need a new mom. excuse, <laughs> right? Right. And you that need- <laughs> was when I
2: really started thinking more deeply about what's going on that I keep putting this off. Mm-hmm. I-, I wonder if if during those moments you ever took a pause and thought, Eek, like, all right, maybe maybe I do need to start, you know, thinking about about this decision?
4: Yes. In my late 20s, I was starting to feel like, "Ooh, maybe not. This might not be for me. But I wasn't I wasn't comfortable with the idea of opting out of parenthood. It felt Wrong to me. <laughs> mm, yeah. I mean the 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 narrative all girls hear when they grow up is that the most important thing they can do when they become adults is to become mothers. Right. And it's a goal, right? That's right. sort of thrust upon you. Yeah. Absolutely. And so it felt really scary to admit to myself that I might not want to do it. So I really didn't I, I use the, the language of coming out. I really didn't mm. come out as child-free until my mid-30s. And and I d- adopt that identity and decide, okay, I want to be public about this choice.
2: Mm. So w- what are some of the responses you've gotten over the course of, you know, your life it, once you got to this place of knowing you wanted to be child-free? Are there, I, I imagine they're sort of both kind of blatant and more subtle yes. <laughs> uh, judgments, <laughs> if you will. Um what What are some of those things that you and your husband face?
4: Um, one of the more blatant ones that we hear, and frankly, I hear more than Lance is the idea that uh, we're selfish for having made this choice. Um, I think a more subtle one that that is that I actually struggled with myself for a while is is sometimes I'll hear, oh, but you're missing out on one of the most you know joyous things about being a woman are one of the core things that about being a woman like how mm. can you do you feel like a real woman <laughs> mm. if if you're not a mother and i struggled with that i mean again going back to the messages that how so like had to,
2: you you doubted your decision yeah,
4: yeah well i didn't doubt my decision but i doubted i worried that something was like broken uh, in me or wrong with me that i wasn't feeling this pull toward motherhood that so many of my friends described. And what I learned when I started doing this work was we talk about motherhood as though there's this instinctual drive for women to do it. And there's really not any scientific evidence that that's the case. You mean the biological clock doesn't really exist? Well, it does in the sense that, sure, there's a certain t- period of a woman's life where she's not able to become pregnant uh-huh. or carry a pregnancy right. to term anymore. I mean, that that happens. <laughs> right. But in terms of a clock that, that nudges women toward motherhood, no, there is not evidence of that. Of course, we have an instinctual drive to have sex. Um, but assuming that that means that we have a drive to nurture another
2: human... For 18 to 25 years. (laughs) That's a leap. Um, That's quite a leap. Yeah. Um, So, do you find then over time that things have gotten a little less overtly hostile in terms of some of the reactions to your child free lifestyle choice? Yes. Although I will say that I've interviewed
4: women and men who have had experiences with friends and family that are very overt. I mean, the, like, I, I'm not in my parents' will because I'm not carrying on the family name, for example. I, wow. think, I think that is overtly hostile. Um, but generally, I think as a culture, well, we certainly have farther to go.
2: We, we've come a long way in terms of accepting this uh, as a choice. Let's talk a little bit about your research and about what you've been, uh, you know, finding. I mean, ha- have you found that more people are, are choosing to not have children these days or uh, you know, is this something that's kind of been growing over the course of a long time, and we just haven't been putting much thought and research into it?
4: Um, I I think it's more the latter. I mean, I don't think that the i that the idea of opting out of parenthood that preventing pregnancy, for example, intentionally is anything new. People have doing, been doing that for as long as there have been people. We haven't always called them child-free. Sometimes we call them nuns or priests or spinsters or bachelors. So mm. we've had other ways of thinking about people who choose not to become parents. But what I think is new is that we're talking about this as, as an identity and that we're talking about parenthood as a choice. And that we're also, I think we're increasingly open to the idea that people can live fulfilling
2: and meaningful lives uh, without becoming parents. Well, you talked to hundreds of people while researching uh, your book about why they made the child-free choice. Were there any trends that stand out to uh, as to why more people may be opting out of having children?
4: Yes. One of the things that was most commonly mentioned by the people that I interviewed and that other researchers have found as well is that for many child-free people, they they have opted to put their energy and time into nurturing a relationship with a partner or spouse. So they recognize, uh, you know, that parenting is a role that takes it <laughs> takes a lot out of people yeah. um you know for better and worse and that uh to to go into parenthood means probably giving up some of the time and energy that you use uh, to nurture uh, a relationship with your with your partner so a number of people mentioned that that they wanted to prioritize that relationship rather than other kinds of relationships another uh actually surprising, finding to me, I hadn't expected this going into it, but many people talked about wanting the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives that that was outside of parenthood. So, for example, a, a quarter of the women and men that I interviewed actually chose careers that are involved in children's lives. So they're <laughs> teachers or their counselors or social workers, and they chose those careers because they knew they wanted to make a difference in kids' lives. But they also wanted to be uh, dedicated to the
2: kids that they were working with as opposed to kids of their own. Okay. Well, I have to ask, you know, a- about uh, aging. <laughs> and there are mm-hmm. some practical <laughs> challenges uh, that-, that come up when-, when you choose not to have children, like who will care for you when when you're older? And you talk about this in your book. Can you share some of the creative ways that uh, child-free people are planning for older age? Yes,
4: I'm glad you asked about that because that is another one of the very common responses that uh, child-free people get when others learn about their choice. And honestly, it's a question we all should be asking ourselves, I think, whether Mm. we are parents or not. If you look at the data, uh, Pew Research Center has found that about 58% of adults help their parents... um, it, it, not regularly, but with uh, easy kinds of chores and tasks. But only 14% of adults help their parents with the more intensive kinds of care that most of us will need in our older age. Things like bathing um, or going to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a question we all should be thinking about. But I, I also think that the child-free are in many ways, leading the charge and finding new and creative ways of aging. So one example that I talk about in the book is the Golden Girls model, which I am a personal fan of. Huge fan. Huge fan. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are child-free people who are making plans to purchase a home with a group of friends and actually come up with agreements about how they will care for each other uh, and and who will care for whom and how they'll pay for care. Um, there are also towns around the country that are establishing living communities that are intragenerational so that have older people and younger people
2: living together in the same building. Well, Amy Blackstone is a professor of sociology at the University of Maine and author of the book Child Free by Choice. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. We had help this week from Glenn Alexander, Matt Lissette, Michael Garth, Peter Engish, Rich Tozier, Kara Foster, and Bart Rankin. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Adam Ezra Group, Karen Connolly, and The Mallet Brothers. I'm Shannon Dooling. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Publics Radio.